You're about to hear my conversation with Constantine Bomer. We talk all about sustainable debt, what it is and what the characteristics are of sustainable debt. We also talk about the current market environments, the three paths that are in front of us, what one is more likely, and what to do with your portfolio. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Constantine Bomer. Constantine co-leads our fixed income team at McKinsey that manages over $40 billion. Constantine, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Matthew. Thanks for having me again. I wanted to start today's discussion by talking about sustainable bonds. Uh, I know that you have a deep experience with sustainable bonds, starting, uh, of course, at being that you're a German native uh, and uh, and the advancement that Europe has in sustainable investments. Uh, also, you're the manager of the McKenzie Global Sustainable Bond Fund. Maybe we can start with some basics. What is a sustainable bond and how are they used? Sure. So sustainable bonds are now actually a quite large part of the fixed income universe. And I would say traditionally they're um, now classified as anything that is labeled as sustainable debt. So there is a, a label that those bonds are getting from, from third party companies and they are labeling debt under the banner of either green or sustainable or social. So the different kinds of bonds, which all fall under the umbrella of sustainable bonds. But the core principle is that they are labeled by a third party. And those bonds are not any different in terms of the, the, the riskiness that one has to look at them. They, they, don't, they carry the same risk, the same and credit risk as non-labeled debt. So one company could issue a bond which is labeled greens or labeled sustainable debt, but that same company could also issue a bond which is not labeled and is just for general purposes. So the, the credit risk of those two instruments would be exactly the same. The only difference is that the proceeds of that bond are earmarked for special areas of their of their business which are either in the e the s or the, the g category and are therefore uh, promoting doing good in in that sense that's great uh, and just so the es and g is environmental social governance um, maybe we can get into more tangible um examples of this. I know that green bonds is something that I hear a lot about, uh, clearly focus there on the environmental. And when I sort of reflect on um, what the world has signed up to as far as climate change goes, uh, certainly it's going to require a huge amount of investment to rebuild a lot of the infrastructure. What role does green bonds play uh, in that sort of transition? Yeah. So I, I think they, they play a tremendous role because there's, as you correctly said, there is a lot of money required to to achieve that transition. And uh, usually when big amounts of money are required, fixed income is, is the area that will foot the bill and that is providing most of that financing. And I think we're currently faced with a 
with a trilemma also on the energy transition. And it's not only the energy transition, but energy is currently at the forefront because we're looking at security, affordability, and of course, sustainability in the way that we are providing energy to the citizens and to the industries around the world. And a lot of those aspects are challenged right now. And what we see is that that there is quite a lot of investment actually going on. So incoming data suggests that there's a surge in investments in the energy transition space. China has done impressive uh, proposals in terms of what, what they're planning and starting to, to engage in. I think it's 150 nuclear power plants, investments mm -hmm. in wind energy quadrupled last year. So there's this meaningful stuff happening. And it looks like uh, this year, so 2022, we'll see transition investments. And that is uh, an energy place is probably 70% or, or so of that will be will breach probably $1 trillion for the first time. And uh, that has that number has doubled over the past four years. So the total transition investments were around 500 billion just four years ago. But in order to, to complete the decarbonization plans by 2050, we probably have to double that amount uh, at least twice in this decade. So there's a lot more that is needed, but at least we've seen a, an acceleration in, in the past a couple of years with this year being probably the, the one where we are breaching the one trillion. That is a really good sign that the momentum is, is picking up. And most of that will be financed by fixed income. So last year we had um, 1.6 trillion, 1.64 trillion in sustainable debt issuance. And roughly half of that was for the global transition investments. So if you if you think about it, so last year we were probably in the close to eight hundred billion in transition investments, and the other eight hundred billion would be for for other purposes. But that is, uh, I think, a, a very important figure because we need to bring that number up. And investing in funds that are actively engaged in that space is is probably a meaningful step to to help with that transition. That's uh, great, Constantine. So sounds like it's a, a vehicle that helps this uh, great energy transition, which is required for us to meet our climate goals. Uh, second uh, piece of that that you mentioned, the universe is growing fairly substantially. So there's uh, room for active managers to be selective on, on the different bonds. One question that I have is the characteristics of a sustainable bond uh, product, be it an index, be it a, a, a fund. How similar is that to a general broad universe bond product? Yeah, good question. So I think they're they're getting much closer over time. Uh, if you would have asked me that same question five years ago, when we launched the our first mandate, there was not so much available to us that we can pick and choose from. So it really was a clear focus on energy companies, so lots of solar, wind, in general, renewable energy companies, which were issuing bonds. So if, if we wanted to, and we, we did it, right? We, we put together portfolios at that time, but there was a, a distinct 
difference in terms of sector allocation, in, in terms of the broad exposures that that uh, market offers. So right. that has changed over time and we're getting much closer to something which looks more comparable to a global benchmark or, or, or something that, that people in as global fixed income investors are more, more used to. And part of that is that right, it started off with, with companies and countries were dragging their feet a little bit, but with the recent issue also of government of Canada and many other governments around the globe, Right, it becomes more of a global fixed income feel that you can actually make your the same duration um, trades that we do for our regular funds. We can shift between different asset classes. So there's a lot more potential now in that space. But I think for us as managers, right, we we want to do good and especially in those funds, but we also have to look after, of course, our investors. And sure. so we we supplement a lot of the the labeled debt that, that I'm mostly talking about here. So dedicated labeled investments where which have that that ticker of being a green bond or a social bond, right? We supplement those bonds with some best in class uh, securities where we just scan the corporate world or the, the sovereign world and look for really good companies in the ESG space and really good countries who are doing all the right things, but they don't necessarily have issued those labeled debts. So we supplement our fund by those good investments as well. And that adds then in another layer of flexibility that we can use to make the, the asset allocation and macro decisions that we would like to, to express in our funds. Thank you very much for that. I'd like to also uh, turn it over to uh, bringing it more into today's uh, market. And if I think about sustainable debt, um, you know, certainly that uh, I think about Europe being a very mature market for it. Uh, however, uh, there's some fiscal policies coming through. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of, of fuel tax cuts uh, that seem like they go against the sustainable debt nature. Uh, obviously, a lot of this has to do with the Russian Ukraine. Uh, situation. What's your current take on Europe uh, and where are you finding opportunities there? All right. Europe, one of the favorite topics, Re reoccurring every every few years. Um, I think Europe is in a very, very difficult spot. I think there's there are paths for Europe to get out of their tricky situation, but the it is a, a challenging environment for policymakers um, right now. As probably everyone knows, the situation in the Ukraine with the Russian invasion created not only or exacerbated the inflationary pressures that were already being felt in all across Europe. I mean, we obviously feel them also in, in North America, US and Canada. But in Europe, they're even more extreme. And they're more extreme, particularly on the energy side, where electricity prices, gas prices, etc., have gone to, to levels which are almost unthinkable from, from the perspective as a, as a North American. So there's a significant push higher on inflation. And we, we've seen the, the latest inflation numbers out of Europe. They, Right. They were lagging the inflation numbers here in North America quite substantially, but have completely caught up and are putting 
policymakers and that is on, on the federal level, but also on the monetary policy side under like some severe stress and, and provide a very challenging environment. So we have inflation spiking higher and we, we can also see that in, in traded securities, so two-year break-evens, so inflation-linked securities, the implied inflation is now quite a bit higher in Europe than it is in the US. And that is coming hmm. from that continent that could never achieve inflation, that continent that was in a, in a much uh, vastly different environment when it comes to expectations of inflation and expectations also of growth for the for the coming decades so that is a, a major right. shift but it is providing um as i said it is providing policymakers with a difficult situation because on the one hand they have to fight that massive inflationary problem but on the other side you have uh, probably it's not only possibly but it's a probably some recessionary tendencies which are coming to to the forefront and that is all prior to even switching off the the gas from russia we're discussing now switching off or or banning coal exports from from russia but if it it comes down to switching the gas off from from gasprom and other deliveries that will create a probably a recession in many European countries, Germany being one of them, with 55% of all gas being imported from, from Russia. And the way that it would work, it, it would hit the industry first before it hits households and before it hits hospitals. So the economic hit could be quite substantial. And as things have played out so far, the, I think the pressure to act and the pressure to to respond to the atrocities that we see out of Ukraine is is quite high. So I, I see that there's a, a major risk of an economic recession in Europe. And policymakers will have to will have to deal with it. And I think that brings us back to your to the original co comment from that, that you made on what are the responses from governments. And they are, I think, so far what we've seen is to provide subsidies, to provide small stimulus packages for the most affected parts of the, of the economy. And that is focusing mostly on the consumer. And that is something that is not really solving the problem because solving the problem is to consume less and let the demand destruction play its course, but if you subsidize your energy bill or if right if, if right. you're providing assistance for that, then the, the incentive to decrease your consumption goes down. So I think that's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's helping. On the other hand, it's, it's hurting the situation because it's not really addressing the, the, the problem. So... Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it here, but there's a lot more to talk about if you would like to see what the, the possible path could be for how Europe will trade in the in the next three to six months. I think there are some really interesting takes on that. Yeah, let, let's let's go down that path, Constantine, but maybe we can even broaden it out to 
uh, talk about fixed income markets as a whole. Um, where you're certainly uh, after a very difficult quarter, I think it was the worst quarter in 40 years for fixed income investments uh, in absolute terms. Um, if you consider where inflation is in real terms, it's even uglier than that. Um, uh, so, you know, base case, I think right now has very aggressive uh, actions out of many central bankers um, pushing interest rates up to try to contain inflation. Uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on base case and the possible scenarios going forward. Sure. So base case, I think for the market is that we will see something like a 1994 soft landing, like quite aggressive central bank hikes, um, bring down, I mean, obviously we didn't have the, the, the same environment in 94, but Sure. Aggressive central bank hikes, some form of quantitative tightening, but not overly aggressive. So more of a rundown rather than active selling. And that should lead, that should start to control inflation and inflation will come down over the course of the next year, year and a half. And that will bring us to a point in probably summer next year where the central bank has raised eight, eight times, probably from here on out, eight, nine times. And inflation is somewhat is controlled. And we're discussing if maybe we don't need to, well, we're just we're probably at the end of the hiking cycle and are discussing if there's the potential to, to cut interest rates a little bit from that point forward, because inflation is controlled. But economic growth is is decent. It's not roaring, but it is decent. So I think that's the base case for market participants. I would say it is a probable scenario. I think there's a, a good chance that it will happen. But I would say my confidence band around that outcome is... is like, not that impressive. So I, I could see that as a maybe 30% scenario, but there are alternative scenarios, which I think are gaining in traction and are really worth considering because they have vastly different investment implication than the base case scenario. The base case scenario is you probably pretty much are at the peak of fixed income bearishness, right? Probably want to own, um, credit, you want to own some duration. Um, it is basically going back to business as usual from here on out because central banks have it under control. But the two alternative scenarios are, one is that central banks do not have it under control. And I, I, I definitely have also sympathy for that. And the reason why that is a not a small tail risk scenario is because we haven't dealt with inflation for a very, very, very long time. Right. And it's not only that decision makers, policymakers haven't really dealt with an inflationary environment for such a long time. Consumers haven't either. Investment managers haven't either. So there's a, a, a lack of understanding of what that actually means and what the implications of a, a, a truly inflationary environment could really be, because it's not a 
we cannot easily point to our experience and say, oh, let's just uh, replicate this playbook from a few years ago and we know how this will play out. And right. what, what uh, we do is we look at other countries. So I think that's, that's one good aspect. I mean, of course, we can look at the, the 70s and try to get clues from that. For sure, we have. We've studied those episodes at length. But also looking at other countries, looking at Turkey, Brazil, Argentina, some other, I'm not suggesting that the United States or Canada is, is like those uh, basket sure. cases in, in the EM space. But it is something where we want to take clues from and see how does consumer behavior actually change? How do, how do asset prices trade in those environments? And one piece that I think is, is quite interesting, which is contrary to, I think, the general belief, also the belief that I had myself prior to, to really looking in, into that is that if, if you spend 100 bucks more or 50 bucks more at the petrol station every week, and another 50 bucks more at the grocery and your variable mortgage is going up and you have some other pressures on car prices or rents or some other areas which are also exhibiting significant inflationary pressures. The tendency should be to tighten your belt and say, oh, look, if my disposable income is getting squeezed by those parts, then I have less disposable income, so I will spend it I won't spend it on going to the restaurant or buying new gadgets sure. or doing something else. So there's that, I think, natural expectation that belt tightening is the natural consequence of that. Right. But in a really inflationary environment, you don't tighten your belt. You buy the things that you think will go up in, in value. So you will front load purchases to the extent of fridge is uh, already leaking you know what maybe let's lock that in and buy the Excellent. fridge right now if people have the financial means because it will just be more expensive in three months or in six months time so i might as well get that now same could be for cars same could be for vacations same could be for a lot of other aspects and that should actually support growth in that environment, but it should put another layer of pressure on, on the inflation side because that is right. uh, just fueling the fire of front-loading those purchases. So the way that we look at it is we try to anticipate those, those that behavior and try to see, is that actually happening or is that just a, an emerging market story? And what we use here is Google search trends. We look at credit card. Uh, payments to to try to be at the first level, the first front of what is actually happening, as opposed to what we think should happen. And that will help us inform our decision if that is a credible scenario to that we have to probably put a higher percentage towards or whether that is just an outside risk that is not going to happen. So as we stand right now, that's probably 20, 25% scenario. So it's significant, but probably also not the central scenario. The other one is uh, the recessionary uh, environment where central banks are just 
hiking rates too aggressively. They are looking at an inflationary problem, which is based on primarily energy. Well, now it is right. based primarily on energy and, and food prices. And those things can turn around quickly. There's a reason why they're not included in core, uh, but are uh, only in, in headline inflation. And if if central bankers are aggressive enough, they will uh, send messages to the market that this that people shouldn't entrench those thoughts of an inflationary environment in their behavior, and they might be overly aggressive and are starving off growth, which could lead to uh, slower growth going forward and even recessionary right. environments in some countries. Canada stands out as one where you have a country which is extremely interest rate sensitive. So um, with uh, the high household debt that we have, with the the massive rise in house prices and the associated exposure to, to the mortgage market, right? And, and last year we had... I think it was over 50%, 55% of all um, loan or, or mortgage origination was floating rate in nature. So there's right. a lot of vulnerability, a lot of sensitivity to changing interest rates. And if we just go by what the Bank of Canada is, or what is priced in for the Bank of Canada, we're talking about eight to nine hikes from here on out until year end. And right. how is that? going to affect the housing market. And that's not just the Canada story. It's to a lesser extent, but also applicable to, to other markets, US and, and some others. But for Canada in particular, that is a scenario which is seems to be very challenging to expect a strong economic environment in, in that scenario. And we see it already on, on some of the early indications for, for housing. It's definitely starting to soften. In some areas more than in others, but it is starting to soften. And right, we haven't even started the hiking cycle. Like we have right. one hike in, but the fifties and the the significant back to back to back expectation of hikes is just getting started, and that should have quite a negative impact on on housing. And as you probably all know housing is a disproportionately large component of the Canadian economy. On the one side, we're winning, Canada is winning from the commodity part, but that is slow and steady, maybe in, in terms of its contribution. The housing market is violent and, uh, and imminent in terms of its contribution to growth. So if I have it right, Constantine, just to lay out the three scenarios that you've that you've gone through is you have a base case, which is a soft landing um, with, with uh, regular hikes by central bankers getting inflation under control, but at the same time, not too fast to stymie growth. And then you effectively have inflation running hotter than central banks are expecting because we haven't dealt with it in a while. Consumers responding by purchasing a lot, bringing forward purchases to spend their uh, money earlier because with the anticipation that things are going to go up in the future. And then the other scenario is that central bankers hike too aggressively, uh, maybe not too aggressively, but very aggressively, um, which which results in lower growth, um, which impacts the the obviously the consumer and brings on a recession. Have I have I laid out those three scenarios yeah. appropriately? You have. I think what I would like to add here. Yeah. 
is that each one is like the, the scenario of inflation, right? We're talking about an additional 200 basis points in hikes relative to what's priced in. So I, I would say that that is a, that would be an extremely bad scenario for fixed income and probably for a lot of asset classes as well. So that's, it's not, a, the, the way that I think about them is not that it's, Oh, sure. In that sense, you assume two more hikes and then you got that covered. It is more, well, let's double what we've priced in up to this point. And same for the other scenario, which is the um, recession uh, scenario. Here we're talking about 30 year bonds could rally back from 260 or so in the, in the US space to. 110 or so like 150 basis point rally in the wow. long end of the curve is an entirely possible scenario in that in that viewpoint because hmm. then you wouldn't have to deal with any inflation anymore and you have negative growth so what is going to happen you probably go right back to cutting rates and qe and right we'll start that same cycle all over so maybe that's just the, the one addition that I would like that those are very extreme scenarios, but we are in a in a very interesting part of of the cycle and we're deciding which path we're taking and they are vastly different. And they're so different because of the the amount of challenge challenges that we're currently facing that you could see very different extreme scenarios play out and each of those scenarios is a fairly significant probability at this stage in in my view. So the million dollar question for you then, Constantine, and uh, we're coming to time, so maybe a fairly, fairly brief answer, but what do you do within the portfolio in order to take account for those three different scenarios? So I think the, the first one is to sharpen our, our senses as to anticipating quicker which one is being played and i think what I we're experiencing right now is a tug of war between those three scenarios and currently the middle one the smooth one is losing out and it's the the two extremes which are fighting for which gets to be played as a narrative by the market and so first order of uh, of operations is to figure out where we're heading. And I think for that, we have to be different than the market, right? And that goes down to looking at different indicators, trying to anticipate the changes before they actually show up in, in data, before they show up on, on the PMIs and GDP reports or inflation reports. So we have to anticipate what is happening, but then we also have to look at our portfolios and look at optionality. I think that's, that's a good one, right? We, we want to be flexible for sure. We want to have our exposures in securities and in asset classes where we can make shifts relatively easily. So I think flexibility is key. Uh, idiosyncratic risk, bringing that down to some extent is, is also important. And then looking at already the biggest winners and the biggest losers in each of those extreme cases and already trying to make adjustments on, 
mostly the biggest losers in, in those scenarios and already make those changes because oftentimes when a narrative is starting to develop and become a force in the marketplace, people focus first on the biggest losers and we're not, that's, that's easy to identify, but it will be very hard to trade those once the market sniffs that that is a real possibility. So we might have to make some of those um, adjustments already now, even if we don't fully believe yet that that is the, the, the central scenario. And as I said, optionality is good. So buying uh, cheaply priced options on some of those scenarios is a good one. I think being short euro is uh, would be central to that. I think Europe would be at the forefront of it. And Canada is actually probably also one of the most interesting countries in all of this, where it is uh, probably a a an interesting market from a durations perspective because of the high interest rate sensitivity that that Canada has, that there's a, a very high chance that Canadian duration will be in, in favor relatively soon. So we need to make small adjustments as we go along, bigger adjustments as probabilities start to, to, uh, to become a little bit clearer as to which scenario is is truly unfolding and keeping flexibility on top of our mind and buying optionality at times when people are underpricing the, the those risks and and have a little bit of those kickers in in our portfolios Constantine, thank you very much for spending the time. That was excellent. I appreciate the uh, the insights on both sustainable debt as well as where we currently are and the different paths in front of us. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Take care. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.